I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. We commenced a study in this precious and very practical book some weeks ago. And we looked at the inspired penman of Proverbs. We considered Solomon's unparalleled wisdom. And then we began to look at the prologue or the preface of Proverbs, our need for wisdom and the fear of the Lord. And we seek to consider this pious principle that is essential to true wisdom by asking a number of questions. And the first question we asked is, what is the fear of the Lord? And then we considered what are the privileges that belong to those who fear the Lord? What duties are required of those who fear the Lord? And then last week, we asked the question, what characteristics mark those who fear the Lord? We saw that the fear of the Lord makes us hate evil, and that the fear of the Lord makes us humble and self-watchful. And we saw that the fear of the Lord makes us respectful of others and upright in our dealings. So follow with me as I read verses 7 through 9 of Proverbs chapter 1. <clears throat> the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Now this morning, we come to consider the last two answers to the question, what characteristics mark those who fear the Lord? I'm sure others could be discovered in the Word of God, but two we're going to consider this morning. And the fourth characteristic of those who fear the Lord is that the fear of the Lord makes us careful to obey God's commandments. I don't know if I could have asked for a better scripture reading to prepare us for this morning's message than what our brother John read to us from the third chapter of First John. The text I'm going to, first text I'm going to turn us to is Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. Now, we have notes prepared that may, there's maybe some of them yet left on the back table. The kind of, it's a road map of where we're going in our message this morning. But the first point that I would have us to consider is that the fear of the Lord makes us careful to obey God's commandments. We'll look at an Old Testament text and a New Testament text. First of all, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. After concluding all of his comments about life under the sun and what it means to be a Christian living among those who have not the hope or the heart of a true believer, Solomon writes, the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person, or your translation may read something like this, that this is the whole duty of man. 
Now, is that a foreign concept to the New Testament? No. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. <clears throat> and I'll read verse 13 as well. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I suggest that you would say that, yes, the Bible teaches, the Old and New Testament agree, that godly fear produces obedience to God's commandments. If the fear of God lives in your heart, you will be motivated to obey the commandments of God. Well, certainly the Philippian Christians believe this. Paul suggests that they had a track record of obeying apostolic teaching. They didn't need the apostle looking over their shoulder to goad them into obedience. And so the fear of the Lord urges obedience to the Lord when no one else is looking. Brethren, we are what we are by ourselves when nobody else is looking. You know, we dress ourselves up in our Sunday best and we can come here. And when around other Christians, we can talk a certain way that we have the lexicon and the lingo of talking as a Christian. But what we are, what we really are, we are when no one else is looking. The Philippians were that kind of people, even with their warts and their blemishes and their trials, their imperfections. They were obedient to the apostolic teaching when other people, even the Apostle Paul, was not looking. And in fact, this kind of obedience is a litmus test of the genuineness of our profession. One who fears God lives consciously in the presence of God at all times. And therefore, he obeys God when no one else is looking, but God who is always watching. This is how we work out our salvation. We obey the Lord no matter who else may be watching. But what is this uh, fear and trembling that the Apostle Paul speaks of? These two words are often combined in the New Testament. We're only going to look at them as they're used here. These two words combine to refer to the seriousness with which we approach the Christian life, and especially our duty to keep God's commandments. This word fear is the basis of our word phobia, phobos. It's used in various ways of causing fear. It's a source of fear or terror in some places. In a negative sense, it's used as to fear, or to be a dread, or to be alarmed at something. But it's also used in a positive sense, as it is here, of fear or respect or reverence, awe, a wholesome fear and regard for God. This is what unconverted people don't have. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no respect, there's no awe 
There's no reverence. And this word trembling is not used as often. It's often used very literally as an outward sign of fear, of being seized with, with great fear or with awe. We should come before God with awe. He is God. We are not God. There is an unbridgeable gap between the Creator and the creature, between the all-holy God and we who are nothing but sin. And we need to reckon that difference between ourselves and God as we consider His commandments. One Greek writer refers to this expression with fear and trembling, and he quotes a couple of other men. Not slavish terror, but wholesome, serious caution, says one man. And another regards fear and trembling this way, a nervous and trembling anxiety to do right. Do you know anything of this? Or do you just have a kind of a flippant, frivolous relationship with God? He's just the man upstairs. Really no different than yourself, but may perhaps made in your own image. But perhaps you say, okay, but doesn't fearing God make obedience to God's commandments burdensome, unspiritual, and even slavish? Well, such is true for the attitude of non-Christians toward God's commandments, but not for one in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. He empowers His people to do what pleases Him. What does Paul say in Philippians 2.13? Why are we to work at our salvation with fear and trembling? For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We can't fear God apart from the grace of God, and we can't keep His commandments apart from the empowerment of God. We can't do it in the flesh. All we can do in the flesh is sin. And so Augustine prayed to God, Command what you will, and give what you command. And God, by His grace, enables those He commands to render imperfect, but yet sincere obedience to His law. And further, the mere contemplation of God's commands brings joy to those who fear God. Paul writes in Romans 7 and verse 22, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. He who had this struggle between the remains of sin and the reign of grace, he says, even then, when I find that there's a different principle in me, the law of the flesh that wars against the law of my mind, he says, even then, when I'm being convicted by the law, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. It's holy, it's just, it's good. I see it that way, and I love it because it's so. Paul, like David before him, was a Psalm 1 kind of man. Psalm 1 in verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night.
we don't like to think about what doesn't delight us. But if the Spirit of God is in our hearts, if we're truly regenerate people, we love God and we love His law. It's our delight to meditate upon it. Lord, what would you have me to do? What pleases you? I am your servant. Here am I. Send me. What would you have me to do? I can't do it in my own strength, but grant me the strength to do what you command. That's the heart of a true Christian. You see, the contemplation of God's enablement to obey His good commandments works both a seriousness and a joy in our hearts at the same time. Indeed, the psalmist in Psalm chapter or Psalm 2 reflects on this. Verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence. So there's the fear of God. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. And so we encourage each other in song. Take his easy yoke and wear it. Love will make obedience sweet. Christ will give you strength to bear it while his wisdom guides your feet. Safe to glory where his ransomed captives meet. Now we who were once in our sins dead to the things of God, dead to the love of God, dead to the love of God's law, we know why non-Christians find obedience to God repugnant. They're at war with God, for one thing, and therefore anything to do with God and the commands that He gives is distasteful to them. Why? Because in them, as was in us, beats the heart of the old Adam, a heart that is fallen and rebellious. Without grace, obedience to God is distasteful and submission is irksome. But you may sometimes wonder why some professing Christians seem to find little joy in obedience. And if you talk with them, they'll say they have no delight in God's law. They're, they carp against obedience to God's commandments. They are regarded as legalistic and unspiritual. It may well be that their hearts have never been renewed. The law has never been written upon their hearts with the finger of regenerating grace. But all the members of the new covenant have renewed hearts that delight in God's law, though they may at times struggle with the remnant of the old Adam, this rebellious still in them. They're under the power of reigning grace, no longer under the power of reigning sin. They have reigning grace in their heart while they have remaining sin in their heart. And there's where the warfare comes. Paul learned godly fear for God's word by God's regenerating grace. For him, the law is wholly just and good. He did not regard obedience to its precepts as unspiritual, as walking in the flesh. No, on the contrary, he teaches that evangelical obedience to God's law is the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we walk in the Spirit when we walk in gospel obedience to the commandments of God. 
Paul teaches this. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 2 or verses 3 and 4. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh and our fallenness, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a perfect obeyer, and as an offering for perfect disobeyers, as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What's the impact? In the hearts of God's people. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You say, you walk in the Spirit. Well, what does that mean to you? If you're a true Christian, walking in the Spirit, if you understand the Bible correctly, walking in the Spirit is walking according to the directives of God's law. You see, Paul agreed with David. For those who love God's law, obedience to his command, commands is animated by the God who gave us his commands. What does David say? Psalm 119 and verse 45 I will walk at, in bondage. Is that what he says? No, I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. Verse 32, I shall run in the way of thy commandments, for thou wilt enlarge my heart. You see, it's God who is at work to will and to do of his good pleasure within those who run in in the way of his commandments, to serve him with fear and trembling. Now the lawless world knows nothing of true obedience. The God-hating, the antinomian spirit of the world has increasingly worked its way into the church over the last 150 years or so, pitting the law against grace in the Christian life. So prevalent is this lawless spirit that many professing Christians decry principled obedience to God's law as Phariseeism. One can only wonder if such persons are strangers to the heart's transforming work of him who promised in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, under the new covenant, the people of God are going to be different. They'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. He writes their law upon their hearts and he forgives them of their sins. But Ezekiel puts it this way. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's life under the new covenant. A new heart makes a formerly disobedient person who has no fear of God before his eyes into a man, woman, or child whose great desire is to please God by obeying His commandments. We know that when Jesus comes again, He tells us that He will pronounce terrible judgment upon not a few, but many professing Christians 
who lived in rebellion to his law while calling themselves Christians. Matthew 7, verses 20 through 27. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, you have his name on your lips, or even calling him Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Jesus isn't going to say, no, you didn't do those things. They did those things. They're not lying about what they did. They're lying about him who they said they served as Lord. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And then he describes what a lawless person is, and he contrasts them with a, a person who is a true Christian. He gives this illustration. Therefore, everyone who hears my words and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. You know this story. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house. And yet it did not fall. Why? For it had been founded upon the rock. And what is the rock? Doing what you hear. Not just hearing. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Let me ask you, judging for, from your response to God's commands, your attitude toward them, and whether you seek to obey them or not, what kind of house are you building? I'm going to ask you if you hear the Word of God. I'm glad that you do. If you do. But what do you do with that Word that you hear? James says, that faith without works is dead. Jesus is saying the same thing. What kind of house are you building? Are you building one founded upon a rock, a principled gospel obedience to the Word of God that will stand the trial of God's searching judgment on the last day? Or is your house resting upon the soundy, sandy foundation of a lawless profession of faith that will end only in your eternal destruction? And great was his fall. Let me ask you this morning, what will the return of Jesus mean for you? What will it mean for me? And so the fourth characteristic of, or mark of those who fear the Lord, is it makes them careful to obey God's commandments. And for the rest of our time this morning, 
The fear of the Lord makes us tremble at God's word. You see, not just obedience only. What's your attitude? Do you have reverence for God and therefore reverence for His Word? God so identifies Himself with His Word that we cannot know Him savingly outside of the Holy Scriptures. You see, we meet Jesus in the Bible and we come to know Him by faith, faith in the Scriptures. Paul makes this plain, does he not, in Romans chapter 10, in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of God, or hearing by the word of Christ, depending on your translation. Paul makes this plain as he rehearses the life of Timothy, his own experience, Timothy's experience. And he writes in 2 Timothy 3.15, And that from childhood you, Timothy, have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The Word of God presents Jesus to us. And by grace, through faith, we lay hold of Him and are saved from our sins. God's Word is His infallible, authoritative, ever-living, life-giving, written self-revelation. Matthew 24 and verse 35. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. He says in John 5 and verse 39, speaking to a number of unbelievers, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They're right. They just went about it the wrong way. They trusted in their works rather than in the one to whom the Scriptures pointed. Because Jesus goes on to say, referring to the Scriptures, it is these that bear witness of me. And then he goes on to say, you will not come to me that you might have life. Brethren, the connection is irrefutable. If we know God, we will revere Him. And if we revere God, we will revere His Word. In fact, His Word produces godly fear in those who know Him. So, Proverbs 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom... And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You see, when we come to know the Lord, we come to know as we should know. And when we come to know Him, we come to fear Him. And when we come to fear Him, we come to revere His Word. Those who seek the mind of the Lord seek Him with godly fear in His Word. Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, If you cry for discernment, lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek for her, that is, for wisdom, for understanding, if you seek her as silver, 
and search for her as hidden treasures. If you tear down mountains, as it were, you dig big holes in the earth as men do for mining to gain precious metals. You're gaining something precious, but you're engaging your whole soul in this search. You're turning over every stone, as we would say. And search for her as hidden treasures. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Now we saw in Psalm 25 that the fear of God makes us humble. It makes us submissive to the word of God. It is to such people and to such people alone that God reveals himself and his truth. But brethren, there's an additional benefit and motive here. God takes great delight in instructing the humble. He delights for you to come to him. He delights to teach you. If you have this kind of attitude, I say this reverently, God will wear himself out teaching you his truth. Please turn in your Bibles, if you're not there, your notes to Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. And this is the burden of text of our study under this point, that the fear of the Lord makes us tremble at His word. Thus says the Lord, this is the last chapter of the evangelical prophet, Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus, the, thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? He said to Solomon, that the heavens cannot contain me. You're going to contain me in a house? I think they wanted a domesticated God, ultimately, And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, and thus all these things came into being. You're going to create something for the Creator? It's good to build the temple. He gave them direction so to do. But they were placing their trust not in the God of the temple, but in the temple of God. We always want to worship tangible things, don't we? We're idolaters at heart. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. So my attention is not there. It's not on those things. My attention is on something else. But to this one will I look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit. You see, the high and the holy one dwells with such people. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. Not the proud and the almighty and the know-it-alls and the movers and shakers in this world, but it's with the lowly, it's with the humble, it's with those of a contrite heart. They bow their knee before him. He condescends to, to come to them, teach them. But to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, I have nothing to offer God and him who trembles at my word. 
Let me ask you do, you, do you desire to catch God's eye? He who dwells in heaven? Do you desire to gain his undivided attention? He who is ordering all things after the counsel of his own will, he who created all things? Then humble yourself under his mighty hand. Assume your proper place before God. Don't be dictating to Him. Put your hand over your mouth and your face in the dust and bend your ears toward heaven. Bow yourself in brokenness at His feet. God calls us to repent of our pride and our self-sufficiency and to assume the posture of a humble, dependent, teachable child. Those are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God, Jesus says. It is to such and such alone that he looks. Listen to James. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Let me ask you, are you humble? If you are, by God's grace, made humble, you will tremble at his word and this is because you see yourself as you truly are in the mirror of his scriptures as ignorant and blind in need of wisdom and sight. Such a broken heart is an empty vessel fit to be filled with the wisdom of the Lord. He delights to fill the humble heart with the riches of his word in the knowledge of himself and in the treasures of his truth. With each of us, we need a heart empty of ourselves, of pride and self-sufficiency that we may be filled with the Lord, a heart empty of our objections that we may willingly and gladly receive His truth. Those are the ones to whom God condescends. We must come to God's Word as we come to the Lord Himself in a posture of humility. So we come to Him that we may gain life. And so we must come to Him to gain wisdom and to serve Him. We must tremble at His Word if we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We must be slow to wrath, angry about what God says in His Word. We must be slow to wrath, slow to speak, but quick to hear. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs preached a series of sermons recorded in a volume of his works entitled Gospel Fear. And in those messages, he gives a powerful and a thorough exposition of God's promise in Isaiah 66 in verse 2. But to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. And I wish to simply set before you Burroughs' thesis and then give you the headings which he fills out, which I won't do, in his first sermon on this text. Doctrine. What does this text teach? Doctrine. A heart that trembles at God's word is very precious in God's eye. Then he writes, All the beautiful objects in the world are not so lovely in the eye of God as a heart that trembles at the word. And then Burroughs describes the heart that trembles at God's word. 
And ask yourself if these things are true. As I've asked him, are they true of me? He gives 11 characteristics of a trembling heart. And one of these points he fills out a little more. But I'm just giving you the headings. First, it is such a heart as has high, honorable, reverent thoughts of God's word when before it was lightly esteemed. Now it's highly regarded. Second, upon this trembling, the soul with all reverence attends when it is either read or preached, whether we take it in with the eyeballs or with the ears. There's reverence. Thirdly, when such a one has heard the word, it dares not cavil. We don't use that word very often. Quibble. Find objections. Argue against. It's true you may examine the word that you hear preached, but not cavil against it. Before the heart is brought to this trembling frame, it will be ready to rise against the word and to entertain vain objections against the word. You have all your excuses and you unpack them and you bring them to the word and say, I don't need to hear this for this and that and the other reason. But the heart is brought to tremble at the word. It dares not cavil and object as before. Fourth, the heart that trembles at the word accounts it a most dreadful condition to have the word speak against it. When you're, when you're in the dock and God is speaking to you, it's a terrible thing. But we need to listen, not run away. Fifth, a heart that trembles at the word receives with all reverence and humility every command of the word and submits itself unto it. It dares not resist any part of the word. It doesn't come to the word like a smorgasbord. I'll take this and that. I'll leave, you know, that and the other. No. It dares not resist any part of the word, neither a commanding part nor a threatening part, but opens itself to receive it. So a heart that trembles at the word dares not resist it, but opens itself to receive whatever the Lord has to give it. Sixthly, it receives with trembling even the promises that are in God's word, contemplating the infinite distance between God and it and its own infinite unworthiness of the mercy that is reached out in the promise. The heart takes hold of it with reverence and fear. And then he gives, here's where he expatiates a little bit. And then he gives six indications of the heart's reverence and fear toward God's word. First, that trembling soul sees that it is the word of God. He sees God in it. Second, he sees an abundance of the glory, the majesty, the greatness, the excellency of God that shines in the word. Third, it sees not only a divine luster, but a most dreadful authority in the word of God. But fourth, a gracious heart trembles at God's word because it sees an infinite justice in the word of God. Fifth, a gracious heart sees the word of the Lord backed with an infinite power. And he quotes Ecclesiastes 8.4. Where the word of a king is, there is power. Think of who this king is that's speaking. So where the word of the Lord is, there is power to make it good. No empty threats. Sixth, 
It sees the luster of God's holiness and being conscious of its own impurity makes it to tremble. In Psalm 99.3 we read, Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. And then he returns to, the, to describing the trembling heart. Seventh, there is another thing which must not be forgotten. And that is those glorious high and divine mysteries that are revealed in God's word makes a gracious heart tremble. Eighth, a gracious heart trembles at the word because it finds very full efficacy and quickness. It is a word that is a two-edged sword, very lively wherever it comes. Ninth, the soul trembles at the word because it sees that word judges all men regarding their eternal estate. Tenth, it is a searching word that comes to examine us here. It searches into the inward and secret parts of the heart. It divides between the marrow and the bones and discovers the very inward thoughts of the heart. We can't hide from God. He sees right down into the very depths of our heart to the very bottom. Eleventh, last, a gracious heart trembles at God's word because it sees it is the word that must be opened to judge it at the great day. Jesus said, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has the word of God that will judge him on the last day. And then Burroughs contrasts the way the Christian who now fears the Lord approaches God's word with the way he formerly treated the word before he came to faith in Christ. He writes, Before fearing the Lord, a person would come to hear the word in an ordinary way. Maybe like switching on the TV. Merely to spend so much time or to hear what a man might say. But when God works this gracious frame into the heart, the soul carefully attends unto it as unto its life and not as a vain thing. He says to himself, I see my life in it and give reverent attention unto the word of God. And then he goes on to describe by this illustration. He says, fear fastens the eye. Things that we're afraid of, you know, we get, that gets all of our attention, right? When one has a fearful apprehension of some thing, it causes the eye to be fastened upon that thing. So when a congregation comes to have many among it who tremble at God's word, it fastens the attention and their thoughts are bent unto it in a more solemn way. End of quote. Does that describe us? But understand that though a Christian trembles at God's word, his trembling at God's word is not without its liabilities. Isaiah goes on to speak about that. When God gave you a new heart to fear Him and to revere His Word, you found out very soon that most people didn't share your newfound seriousness about God and the Bible. And what you have discovered since is almost as grievous to your soul as your own struggles with carelessness about God and about His precious truth. And that is the cool and even hostile 
reception you may receive from other professing Christians as they observe you to walk in the fear of God and to order your life in uncompromised obedience to His Word. Brethren, we should expect such treatment from the world, but such hostility is especially painful when it comes from others who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Isaiah speaks of such persons, Jews in name only, but not the spiritual seed of Abraham, who despised those who fear God and taunted them for trembling at his word. And we read Isaiah's exhortation to these God-fearers in Isaiah 66 and verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But they will be put to shame. And so those that feared God and trembled at his word were despised. They were ostracized by the Jews that had not the law of God written upon their hearts. Your religion is just too much. You take it too far. Come on, lighten up a little bit, would you? Isn't the joy of the Lord your strength? Ah, but it's joy in submission to the Word of God. I'm sorry you understand not a syllable of that. Notice that those who demonstrate their fear of God by trembling in His Word will never be popular with those who do not share their reverence for the Bible. In fact, such brethren will be taunted for being over-religious, being too strict, being Puritans, etc., etc. Conscientious Christians who show by their unreserved commitment to God's Word, not perfect, but principled obedience, heart obedience, they will be hated, they'll be ostracized, by the carnal and worldly-minded, even in the church. This was true of Isaiah's original readers. The righteous remnant was hated and taunted by the unregenerate Jews who returned from Babylon back to Judah and Jerusalem. This also happened when formalists in the first century despised Jesus and His disciples for loving and living the Word. Such is true today and will be down to the end of the age, sincere piety and deep reverence for God's word galls those whose religion is only show. It gets under their skin. It afflicts their conscience, and they lash out. Brethren, easy Christianity hates principled Christianity. Why? Because what is genuine exposes what is counterfeit. It has always been the experience of all, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted by those who only have a form of religion but don't have its power. 2 Timothy 3. Notice that God vindicates those who fear Him and puts their detractors to shame. He looks upon, His eye is upon them, His heart is, is toward those who tremble at His word he looks upon them with approval and vindicates them, but will put shame 
upon those who don't tremble at his word, but only mock those who do so. God had earlier promised his vindication of the righteous remnant. Isaiah 54, verse 17. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. God will not fail to support and bless the Christian who prays, as David did, Psalm 119, verse 38, Establish thy word to thy servant as that which produces reverence for thee. So don't be surprised if you're taunted by professing Christians who do not share your reverence for God's word, if you're such a person. I hope that you are. I pray that you are. If you're not, you will be. That I will be. We'll be those kind of Christians who don't just have a name that we are alive, but that we are alive. And settle it right now. You're never going to be the darlings of the world and the favorites of this church of our day. You're not going to be favored by carnal professing Christians. You bother them. You get under their skin. Didn't our Lord warn us of this? Warn us of this? John 15, verses 20 through 21. Remember the word that I said to you. Hey, don't you forget this. You put this up on the, with a magnet on the refrigerator of your mind. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, the master, they will persecute you, the slave. If they kept my word and they didn't, they will keep yours also, and they didn't. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. You see, it's ultimately they're against Christ. They're not against us. It's against Christ in us that they see. That's what they rebel against. Notice. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. See, because they don't have the root of the matter in them. Because they do not know the one who sent me. They don't know God. And therefore, they don't know you. You're an enigma to them. You don't make sense to them. They don't like what they see because they see God in you and they're in rebellion against Him. Don't take it personally. That's why Jesus went on to say in John chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And these things they will do to you, again, because the root of the matter is not in them, because they have not known the Father or me. So what does this mean by way of three very brief concluding observations? Notice, first of all, that Christianity is first a religion of being before it is a religion of doing. You can go through all the motions and no wonder you don't enjoy them because you don't do those things for the right reason. Your heart isn't toward God. You see, first we have to know God before we will fear God. And we must fear God in order to serve God by 
submission to His Word and obedience to His commands. We must be renewed by God first. We don't start with the work of our hands and work back to the knowledge of God. That's impossible. God has to reveal Himself to us in grace. We have to come to know Him and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. That's to have eternal life. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. So Christianity is first a religion of being before it's a religion of doing. And all the doers that don't have the being, they're lying to themselves. No wonder they don't find any joy in their outward obedience to God command because it doesn't flow out of an inward principle. The inward principle is what gives delight to the obedience to God. Secondly, God-fearing Christians will always be opposed by counterfeit Christians. Expect this if you are a true Christian. Don't be derailed when it happens. Don't abandon the fear of God to be in with those before whom there is no fear of God before their eyes. Don't compromise in order to please the carnal. And finally, because genuine Christians fear God, they will tremble at His word. That is a very plain, obvious, unmistakable characteristic of someone who fears God. Do you tremble at His word? Because God is in it. He's speaking through it. He's speaking through it right down to the the depths of your heart, do you hear His voice in His Word? Or are you trying to run away from Him? You never escape Him. If you don't find Him in the day of grace, you'll meet Him at the day of judgment. Do you fear God and revere His Word? Does your reverence inspire obedience to His Word? Examine yourself. Where there's no fear of God, there's no faith in God. It's as simple as that. Let's pray. Lord, Father, we have been brought to the touchstone of your truth. Your all-seeing eye has looked into our hearts by your Spirit through your Word. And we pray that we would not be those that James speaks about who go to the mirror of the word, they see themselves, and then they walk away forgetting what manner of man, woman, child they are. Oh Lord, speak to us. Deal graciously with us. You know us down to the very depths of our being. And we pray that you would reveal those, those areas of de defect and deficiency, those areas of sin and rebellion, Show them to us, not just to convict us of our sin and to, to convince us of our liability to your judgment, but turn us from those things to the cross that we might see high and lifted up Jesus Christ who came from glory to save the likes of us. So Lord, have, have mercy upon us. In wrath, remember mercy. And in mercy, remember us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.